Welcome to Catholic Living, a podcast that seeks to be a user's guide to the Catholic faith, where we boldly ask, what if this stuff is all true? How then should we live? This is brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I'm Tom Hoops. I'm writer in residence here at the college. You can read what I write at alatea.org or excorde.org. And I want to talk about the mistakes we make about mercy. Divine Mercy Sunday is the second Easter Sunday each year. And I think we get a lot wrong about mercy. But I want to share two experiences I had in the confessional that reminded me about the mistakes we make about mercy. So the, the first experience is from the mid-1990s. I was working in Washington, D.C. in the National Press Building, and I would go to confession at the church near there. And at the time, I was going to confession pretty regularly every two weeks. Uh, so I'd go down there during my lunch break or whatever. And one day, the pastor wasn't in the confessional. It was usually Monsignor Vaghi. But this time, it was a priest visiting from Zimbabwe. And my confessions are pretty typical, and this was a pretty typical confession for me. I'm a slob, I confessed. My desk is a mess. I lack self-discipline. I haven't helped my wife out as much as I should around the house. I haven't called my mom. I kind of recited the sins from memory, head bowed, kind of planning to amend my life and change those sins, and kind of not planning to amend my life or change those sins. When I was done, there was this awkward pause, and I looked up, and that African priest's face was filling the screen of the confessional, and his eyes were staring directly at me, seeming to stare inside my soul. In a sharp, angry, heavily accented voice, he said, Do you believe in God? Well, the question shocked me. I did, I thought, didn't I? I wondered if he really was staring into my soul and seeing something that I didn't realize was there. But then I thought, no, you know what? I've thought this through, and yes, I believe in God. So, uh, yeah, I gulped. And his next words came quietly and slowly as if he could barely contain his emotions. Then why do you sin? I was startled, I was alarmed, I was frightened. I asked the question very sharply to myself, wait, do I believe in God? Wait, why do I sin? And then his whole countenance changed. He leaned back in his chair and launched into a kind of a gently worded, very typical priest advice in the confessional. It's almost like a Jekyll and Hyde type of thing. Um, I should try harder, I should trust in the grace of God, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But the point had been made by his initial reaction, and I guess maybe that was his purpose. My whole confession, my whole demeanor, my phraseology, my list of sins, it all communicated a soul who had gotten used to sin, who saw it as a minor detail. Sin was like an unmade bed in my life. But sin is not like that. Sin is a very big deal. Sin is a huge deal. And the mercy of God is not the shoulder shrug of God. It's an enormous and enormously costly gift bought for and paid by Jesus Christ. We're going to get to that. But let me tell you about another confession experience I had first. This was when I was working in San Francisco uh, for a corporation in the financial district. 
and I would go to mass again downtown. This was Notre Dame de les Victoires. It was a French church right near the entryway to Chinatown. I don't remember what sin I had sinned. I don't remember if it was pride or lust or greed. I really don't. I'm trying to remember which it was. It's probably pride or lust or greed. But I remember it was a relatively minor sin. But the more I thought about all the circumstances around this sin, the more I freighted it with a huge importance. Sure, it was minor, but it was the tip of a much larger iceberg I saw in my life. I was worried about this sin for days. I think I skipped communion over this sin at least once. And I was waiting for the day that Notre Dame de Victoire had confession. The day arrived, I saw the light on in the confessional, and it was like a beacon of hope to me in a very dark chasm. And I sank down into the musty booth, and I shudderingly unburdened myself of this heinous deed. Only when I actually said it out loud, it was pretty clear even to me that it wasn't all that heinous. And again, there was this awkward priest pause after I had released this tiny little sin into the air between us. He said, is this all? I said, uh, yeah. So he said, well, these things should not trouble us. Do you want absolution? (laughs) I apologize for my poor accents. I said, I guess, but my scrupulosity was vanishing in a cloud of embarrassment. We should never let the mistake of our feelings tell us what the truth is about our actions because our feelings are often very disconnected from the real import of our actions one way or the other. There's a very consoling comment that John writes in one of his letters that we should reassure our hearts before God whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts. So I lean on that a lot when I'm tempted to scrupulosity. But of the two mistakes of thinking that sin is no big deal or thinking that sin is too huge a deal, I would be willing to bet that the first mistake is more common. So I want to start there and share among these mistakes of mercy, which I want to share, a first mistake, which is that mercy isn't free. We make the mistake of thinking mercy is free, but mercy isn't free. Justice must be paid. Of course, it's free to us. Mercy is free to us. We get it for free. That's a real thing, and I'll talk about that. But when Jesus, risen from the dead, appears to the apostles and gives them the power to forgive sins, they know exactly what it takes. It takes the cross. Before he gives them the power to forgive sins, he shows them his wounds on his hands. Uh, The two things are deeply connected. When we sin, we offend God. When he has mercy on us, he does not simply shrug his shoulders and say, forget about it. Justice must be paid, and Jesus paid it for us. He's a father, not an uncle. Your uncle doesn't care what you do. A good father does. It's easy to see why justice must be paid if we look at the case of notorious sinners. We can't imagine Adolf Hitler or Osama bin Laden coming before God only to be greeted with a grin and a, hey, don't worry about it. Come on in. But we can also see it clearly in our own lives. When someone takes what is ours, we don't want them to say, sorry, dude, but I love it. I'm going to keep it. We're good, right? No, we're not good. We want you to give it back to us. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. We know that that's how our mortgage company operates. 
our car seller, or the IRS. What is owed must be paid. In our relationship with God, everything we have is a gift from him. We owe it back. That's the whole way this is supposed to work. He gives us things in love, and we give them back in love. If we use our possessions, our talents, our will to insult him, to take his gifts and hand them over to the devil, or to just enjoy them for our own pride, vanity, or comfort, our infraction cannot be simply shrugged off. What is owed must be paid. And the beauty and joy of Divine Mercy Sunday is only made possible by the horror and sorrow of Good Friday. Jesus paid our debt. When he stood before the high priests and Pilate and was accused of crimes that deserved death, he did not defend himself. He didn't say he didn't deserve death. He couldn't say that because he did deserve death, because he made himself guilty of our sins. He took on himself the sin of the woman who committed adultery, who was going to be stoned to death according to the law. He took on himself the sins of every prodigal son. He took on himself the sins of you and of me and of every single person. Demons did not crucify him, said St. Francis. It is you and I who have crucified him and crucify him still when we delight in our vices and sins. Think of how horrifying this is. God gave us everything we have, and we gave it to the devil for cheap thrills. Jesus responded by taking on the crushing burden of our betrayal, a burden so great that it made him sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then he sacrificed himself so that we would not have any consequences to this horrifying sin that we had done. We took his gifts, we squandered them, and he made himself guilty of our offense so that we wouldn't have to pay anything. What was owed must be paid, and he paid it. Another mistake we can make about mercy is the God looks the other way mistake. This is presumption, or as I like to call it, the innocent one syndrome. Very few people think they are literally sinless, having done nothing wrong, but more likely, we can at times think our wrongdoing is part of our psychology or physiology, something that we have to just kind of accept as part of our lives. We know that there are parts of our lives that are uglier than others. We're sometimes too angry. We're sometimes too curious online. Sometimes we're too generous in helping ourselves to what is not strictly ours. But this is simply who we are. It happens. It's not that big of a deal. Oh, well. Or maybe we innocent ones don't really think our sins are truly ours. Yes, I did some things I regret, but that's not the real me. The real me is the good me. The me who does those things I'm proud of. We're experts in rationalizing our behavior. After all, we take breaks from diets by eating a chocolate or drinking a Coke but still think we're dieting. Uh, we take breaks from our general moral behavior by doing an occasional bad thing, but we still think we're morally upright. This, my friends, is called presumption. We figure Jesus doesn't really focus on those bad things I do. Just like us, he kind of looks the other way. But God is truth and goodness and purity itself. It is not in his nature to shrug off evil. Another mistake we make is the kind of the opposite mistake, the hopeless sinner syndrome. There are two ways we suffer from this. Either we think God doesn't care about us because we are worthless, 
or we think God cares a lot and is perpetually mad at us. The first mistake is despair. The second one is scrupulosity. The answer to both is to have more faith and trust in God's action, as described in John 3.16. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world may be saved through him. The two syndromes actually share a root cause. They give sin a power in our lives that it doesn't really have. Let me describe this in terms of the arithmetic of mercy. Christians get in trouble when they think that this equation describes us. My virtues minus my sin equals the real me. If that equation is true, we have to either admit failure or lie to ourselves about one of the parts of the equation to keep the real me respectable. We either have to inflate the my virtues part or diminish the my sin part. Divine mercy teaches us a very different equation. The real me equals my sins plus Christ times grace. You see this in the Easter readings where you see the apostles who shamed themselves with disgraceful behavior during Holy Week suddenly accomplishing signs and wonders for all the world to see. Peter, who slept when he should have stayed awake for Jesus and denied the Lord three times, is a figure of awe in the early church as people line the streets hoping that even his shadow will fall on them. Clearly, for these apostles' new identity, sinner plus Christ times grace is the operative equation. Which maybe could be called another mistake. We don't know who we are. Know thyself was an ancient maxim that Socrates handed on to Plato. Jesus upped the ante saying, love your neighbor as yourself, which means, by the way, that you actually have to love yourself in order to love your neighbor properly. All of that puts a premium on knowing yourself, something we are well equipped to do, because our faith puts a giant mirror in front of us and invites us to look at who we are. But too often, we look at two other more dishonest mirrors. One is the mirror of pride. So the pride mirror that we look at is like one of those funhouse mirrors that children look at because it makes them look like giants. When I look at myself with pride, I'm the star of the me show that is my life. Those things I did yesterday were all segments of the show. There was the family hero segment where I selflessly replaced the butter in the dish that had run out. I ignore the fact that I didn't do anything with the budget, which I don't like to do, and which is more importantly what I should be doing for the family. I leave that out of the me show. Or there was the interaction with coworkers segment in which, according to my pride mirror, I said just the right thing in just the right way. Although if you took my coworker aside and asked my coworker what he or she thought, they would surely disagree with my take on the matter. Christians look at this pride mirror a lot. I saw a poll that compared how Christians see themselves, which is non-judgmental and generous and compassionate, with how non-Christians and non-religious people see them, which is judgmental, not compassionate, and not very generous. Uh, obviously, I think that the people are missing something in the way they're looking at Christians. But I also think the Christians are missing something in the way they're looking at themselves. The pride mirror is uncritically flattering. My exercise yesterday became my great perseverance, while the parts of the exercise I skipped became my great prudence. The cookie I skipped was self-discipline. 
The soda I drank was self-care. In the mirror of pride, I am always the fairest of them all. Then there's another mirror we look at that makes us grotesque. In addition to the funhouse mirror that uh, makes you look like a giant, there's the funhouse mirror that makes you look misshapen and monstrous. I often look at myself in that mirror and get depressed. I remember what I said yesterday and I can't believe what an idiot I was. Or, or I remember the mistake I made seven years ago and shame wells up in me and all the sting of what I did comes back like a fresh wound. This is, believe it or not, vanity. So pride is valuing who you think you are despite what everybody else thinks. That's pride. Vanity is disproportionately caring about what other people think of you. So if your opinion of yourself is in the center of your life, you're proud. If others' opinion of you is at the center of your life, you're vain. Well, when I'm vain, I believe that others' opinions of me is all that matters. And I'm enraged at myself for not being the master of each situation. And my wounded pride tells me that everyone rejects me over my weakness. The mirror distorts my understanding of myself and makes me look twisted and dark. This kind of thinking is very common nowadays, and it's at the root of spiking rates of anxiety and depression, according to some psychologists. It's really spurred on by social media, this vain opinion of oneself, and always comparing the number of likes you get and the amount of number of followers you get to everybody else. But uh, we tend to catastrophize every mistake, and turn every fault into a fatal flaw. The great counter practice that's offered by psychologists is cognitive behavioral therapy, which helps people recognize these common thinking errors and catch them and correct them. Remind yourself that it's not the end of the world if such and such happened, and it doesn't mean you're a terrible person if you did such and such. Uh, so the whole idea is to gain an objective view of yourself and not look in a funhouse mirror that makes you look either giant or grotesque. Well, what we have to help us do that is to look at ourselves through the eyes of Jesus Christ. So a third mirror you could look at is your reflection in his gentle eyes. My virtues are real in this mirror, but so are my vices. If I'm willing to look at them clearly, I can fix mistakes that need fixing and laugh off mistakes that don't need fixing. Alongside Jesus Christ, I can see how weak I am in addition to how great I am to be loved by one such as he. How great am I? John Paul II said, compared to the immensity of the universe, man is very small, and yet this very contrast reveals his greatness. You have made him little less than a god and crowned him with glory and honor. That's how great we are. Or as my friend Jim Orlino puts it, as we look up to God, we are nothing. As God looks down to us, we are everything. So the woman of Cana who told Jesus that she should get uh, what she's asking because even the dogs deserve scraps from the table. She knew who she was. She was not the star of a me show. She was a beggar before God like a dog, but one worthy of the full attention and personal responsiveness of the second person of the Trinity all the same. The Blessed Mother also saw who she was. She said, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and from this day all generations will call me blessed because she recognized that God had given her great gifts. But we can recognize all the things that are great about us and all the things that make us little as well. So if you're having a hard time seeing who you are and 
if you tend to look in the pride mirror or the vanity mirror, the place to look is in the eyes of Jesus Christ. One place to look is in a crucifix. Because in a crucifix, you see both God's love. He did this for me because he loved me. He would have done this for me if I was the only person in the world. And also the damage of sin. God would have had to do this even for my sins. Or look to the face of Christ. Uh, St. John Paul II said, Jesus reveals man to himself as he was preparing the church for the Jubilee. And afterwards, he said, if we ask what is the core of the great legacy of the Jubilee year, I would not hesitate to describe it as the contemplation of the face of Jesus. So find your favorite depiction of Jesus's face and look into that face. You will see his reproof and his love. It's the mirror I look at every morning when I do my prayer to remind me of what my life is to remind me I'm not in a me show that's all about me and that I'm not some kind of grotesque creature that has to worry about what everyone thinks, but I am safe in his eyes. And all of that leads me to one final, I might even say ultimate mistake about mercy, the free pass mistake. The idea that Jesus's mercy means that we don't have to worry about sin. This is kind of the mistake I've described in the past that I made about mercy when I first heard about it as a child. Where I thought, okay, well, Jesus doesn't care what I do, so I don't care what I do either. And I love how the apparitions at Fatima give a giant antidote to this. Jacinta Marta was one of the three shepherd children who saw Our Lady of Fatima, and she saw a vision of hell, which shook her to her soul, as I've mentioned before and changed her. But I wanted to share some of the words she said about sin after that. She said, it is necessary to pray much to save souls from hell. How sorry I am for sinners. If only I could show them hell. She famously said, the sins that cause most souls to go to hell are the sins of the flesh. She pleaded with her mom, mother, fly from riches and luxury. Next time you're on Amazon, remember little Jacinto Marta saying, fly from riches and luxury. In other words, Jacinta was scared white by the sins that are most common in America today. Sins of consumerism, sins of lust. Pope Francis in his book, The Name of God is Mercy, explains several ways we ignore our sin. For him, the good news of mercy isn't that God doesn't find your sins horrifying it's that with God's mercy, you can stop doing horrifying things. He said, we are not condemned to sink into quicksand in which the more we move, the deeper we sink. He said, Jesus is there, his hand extended, ready to reach out and to pull us out of the mud, out of sin, out of the abyss of evil into which we have fallen. We need only be conscious of our state, be honest with ourselves and not lick our wounds. We need to ask for grace to recognize ourselves as sinners. So that's the conclusion. The greatest thing about divine mercy is that it helps you to stop sinning. That's why the acts of mercy are called what they're called, I think, because the more you do the acts of mercy, the more you will spend your time doing good rather than evil. To stop sinning, try feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, sheltering the homeless visiting the sick, the imprisoned, and burying the dead. 
or the seven spiritual works of mercy. Counsel the doubtful, instruct the ignorant, admonish sinners, comfort the afflicted, forgive offenses, bear wrongs patiently, pray for the living and the dead. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is the Catholic Living Podcast produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.